Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. This month's program, entitled Of Trainwrecks and Heartaches, is sponsored by Mad Scientist Journal and features the music of Psyche Corporation. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. Come with me and conquer time. Transmigration journeys expand your mind. The past and future are not aligned. Come with me and conquer time. One thousand years we transverse, what will still be true? A thousand years remember, is death all we recall? One heartbeat between our lives, one truth above When last we saw our doctor, she was a dashing and romantic highwayman in 17th century France. There are a few things I have observed in our doctor of late. First, she no longer seems importuned by the masculine anatomy. She seemingly has discovered, a century and a half before the rest of humanity, the fact that outward genitalia bear little to no relation to inward identity. Had she been a man, and her writings thereby more widely respected, she might have had a much greater impact on our growth towards enlightenment. Second, she is less and less concerned with the strictures of her academic surroundings. Although she has always paid minimal attention to thou shalt nots and musts, since the Chargé de Fer set up her secret laboratory, she has become even more radical in her philosophies, ignoring strictures on timeliness, social etiquette, and university hierarchies. Third, in the domains of her laboratory, she is absolute ruler and has become less and less prone to considering the perspectives of others, even those of her closest associates. I worry, dear listeners, that our good doctor's id could be ruling her superego to the detriment of herself, and I am not the only one who thinks so. I do see your concerns, Professor, but whatever do you propose we do about it? That's just the problem, Abigail. I've had no luck persuading the doctor to rein in her excesses, and there does not seem to be an appeal that can be made to her feminine instincts either. What do you mean, feminine instincts? Oh, well, you know, the desire for a husband and family, so that she has someone other than herself to think of. You've asked Petra for her hand in marriage? No, absolutely not. Aww. It's not that I haven't thought about it, but... But what? It is obvious how the two of you feel about each other, and I thought that after the circus... Oh, that we would finally drop the pretense of being just colleagues? Exactly! Well, I thought perhaps as well. I was mistaken. 
Have you spoken to her about it? There's been no chance. She's so deucedly caught up in her work, and any overture I make that is not directly related to our next transmigration is brushed aside with no cogitation. I have noticed. She missed three surgical sessions downstairs this past month alone. It is as if her private transmigration studies have completely erased her earlier commitment to limb reattachment. I think I shall have to confront her. The question is when, and with what approach. Concerned friend? Solicitous peer? Desirous lover? I think, perhaps, before you risk your friendship, I should try. She might respond better to the professional concerns if I explain I'm worried that Cunningham may begin asking questions. He hasn't, has he? Well, no. But I suspect that it's because he's felt relief Dr. Sage has been so quiet. But Dr. McLeish has been whispering in Cunningham's ear, and the two of them would be most gratified if she were cut out of the project due to her inattention. I suspect it will not be long before they attempt an action on this point. Oh, but that would be dreadful. If Petra is horned out of the university's galvanization studies, she will lose all access to the laboratories. If she loses the laboratory access, another fellow may be assigned to her lab downstairs and the attendant personal chamber. Oh, and if that person opens the wardrobe, in short order, they would discover the elevator mm-hmm. and entrance to this laboratory. Exactly. Petra cannot afford to let her transmigration studies subsume all other concerns. The time has come for us to intervene. You are correct, Abigail. I have only been considering her mindset in the personal realm, but of course, her distractions affect her standing in the college as well. When shall we approach her? I think I should approach her alone, Professor, and the sooner the better. After we have dealt with the professional crises, we can discuss how to deal with the personal one. I shall do my utmost to remain patient then, and wait your report. In the event, Abigail did not need to caution the doctor about her inattention to the galvanization experiments, because Cunningham cornered her first. Oh, Dr. Sage, I am so pleased to have caught you. I'm sorry, Mix Cunningham, I'm afraid I'm on my way to- To today's surgical trial? (laughs) Yes, that is exactly what I wish to speak with you about. Well, in truth, I was going to my personal chambers to write some observations into my logs. One must keep precise details, mustn't one? Yes, well, it might help one to write those logs were one to actually attend the experiments. What do you mean? There is no reason to play coy with me, Dr. Sage. I have spoken with McLeish and Simpson. They have informed me that you have missed three surgical sessions, sending your young protege in your stead. This is not acceptable. First of all, Abigail Entwistle is not my protege. She is your informant. (laughs) Secondly, she is a scientist in her own right, and her observations are entirely valid and completely reliable. Be that as it may, it is your precious project, and the university expects better of you. If I were allowed to scrub in and actually participate in the trials, it might be different. If all I am allowed to do is take notes like a measly scrivener, then I do not see the harm in asking Abigail to do it for me. That is perilously close to insubordination, Petronella, and I won't have it. In this university, the dean of each department sets the parameters for research and experimentation as they see fit, and these are the parameters that have been set for galvanization. You mean for my galvanization, don't you? Whatever you want about. My galvanization. No other galvanistic studies have required the initiating physician to sit on the sidelines and take notes. 
rather than actively participate in the experiments. Well, there are no other studies that require the fine hands and sharp surgical eyes you have. So you are telling me that the very complicated nature of my experiments, experiments which I have carried out at the cadaver stage with great success, I might add, you contend the very intricacy of working with the human nervous system is justification for cutting me out of my own research. Poppycock! Now see here, Petronella Sage. Ah, there you are, Doctor. And good. You found Max Cunningham. Have you told him your idea? My idea? Yes, your idea to ease the discomfort of test subjects in speed recovery time. You see, Max Cunningham, this is what Dr. Sage has been spending a great deal of time working on this past month, and that is why she's had me attend the trials in her place, so she could work out the computations on her new post-surgical electro-stimulation support device for reattached limbs. I have? Oh, I have. Uh, yes, Mix and Whistle's help has been invaluable in this endeavor. Why don't you explain the idea, Abigail? Right. So, um, healing from a surgical reattachment is not a quick process. In fact, it takes a deal longer than the time for a nerve to atrophy. This is why, up until this point, reattachment has been considered impossible. Because without a precise join of a living nerve end to a living nerve, the electrical pathways atrophy even as the muscles heal, leading to an appendage that has proper circulation but no movement. Yes, yes, get on with it. Uh, well, the doctor's been working on a cuff that can be applied directly above and below the sutures that will directly stimulate the nerves in... In a closed circuit? Via a capacitor and a grounding rod connection. Wearing such a device for as little as an hour each day should keep the nerves alive and functioning as designed until hmm. the musculature well, is healed properly. That is a fascinating idea, Dr. Sage. And to be truthful, Mix Cunningham, the original idea was Mix Entwistle's, and I shall be granting her full credit for it. We are, after all, a team. So, with quick thinking and her prodigious imagination, Abigail extracts the doctor from her perilous conversation with Cunningham and diverts the disaster of disenfranchisement. Will the professor be as successful in broaching the topic of their personal relationship? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the talented melodical expressions of Psyche Corporation.
And now, back to our story. Two weeks have passed, dear listeners, and we find ourselves revisiting our heroes on the day of St. Valentine's when chocolates, posies, and paper hearts travel between lovers and prospective suitors with marked determination despite the rather questionable history of the day. Having stewed and dithered and stewed some more, the professor has decided to seize the excuse of the lover's holiday to confront his friend with the entirety of his feelings. It is progressing as well as you might imagine. I'm surprised at you, Erasmus. Even I know that the legends and traditions surrounding this day are mostly muck. Lupercalia, indeed. may be right that there are many aspects of the holiday that are simply rumors and codswallop, 
But that does not deflate the true romantic notions behind the need for the holiday in the first place. You cannot convince me of the need for a holiday celebrating an overly aggrandized apologue of human relationship. It connotes an inability to trust in the bedrock of personal contract and instead prescribes romantic success to such trifles as pounding hearts and fluttering eyelashes. What? Would you claim scientific proof that the pounding of one heart cannot denote devotion of one's soul? You are a cold woman indeed, Petra. Erasmus, good friend, what now? Have I upset you? I meant no personal offense, rather a disputation of ridiculous public displays of affection. Well, it is a good thing I chose to leave my display of affection for you on the very private desk here in your secret laboratory, where no one will ever have to know that you are a beloved woman. Petra watched her friends storm off, puzzled at the dramatic reaction to her teasing. He was not normally so touchy regarding his holidays, most especially ones with as checkered a history as Valentine's. She left her tea and went through to her office, where she found an absolutely stunning orchid in a Chinese vase on her desk. She opened the attached card and read, My oh-so-practical love, not for you the posy nor the nosegay of needless blooms, not the lace nor the chocolate, nor the protestations of undying love. Instead, I offer this most sought after and scientific of plants, the orchid. My friend, Henry Saunders, the Queen's orchid hunter, tells me that this is Pathiopadillum parashai, and it comes to us from Siam. This plant can self-pollinate, making it as independent and lovely as you. Its twisted petals are also quite unique, and I believe are a good visual representation of your independent mind. <laughs> Enjoy with my compliments. Erasmus. The doctor has the decency to look chagrined, but she shakes herself free of whatever emotions she feels and turns to her logs. She needs to put the finishing touches onto her electro-stimulator cuff so that she will have something to show Cunningham the next time he sticks his neb in her business. She is still head down over her design blueprints hours later when Abigail arrives to feed the creatures and put them to bed for the evening. Hello, Doctor. I assumed you'd be out. Out? Why? Because the Professor. Oh, did he not give you the orchid in person? He tried. I believe I may have spoiled it. Oh, dear. Uh, well, it wasn't on purpose. He was talking twaddle about the personal and cultural significance of Valentine's Day with no regard for the commercialism and the enforced sentimentality of the printers and the chocolatiers. Oh, dear. Yes, well, he should know me well enough by now to understand that the direct route is best. I shall send a note of apology and all will be fine in the morning. The morning? Why, yes, in time for our next transmigration. I went to try the new lateral flexion amplitude delineator to see if we can control the month and day of our travels as well as the year. Is that what you've been sneaking up here to work on? Yes, it's one step further on the path of controlling our trajectory. Now, if it were only so easy to target the place of our arrival, I still haven't come up with a way to specify our exact transmigration location. Ah, well, there are years of study ahead for us for that. 
And by the way, I haven't properly thanked you for the idea of the electrostimulator cuff. This really will make a positive difference to nerve regeneration. I was desperate to save you from Max Cunningham's wrath, and it just popped into my head. Sometimes the best ideas are the spontaneous ones. Rarely the case for us mere mortals, Doctor. Now, I'd best get those creatures fed. <laughs> Thank you, Abigail. See you in the morning. That file has been corrupted. Corrupted how? It was just open. I'm sorry. I do not have that data. Computer, have you been hacked? It seems likely, yes. Is this the same as that night in October? Has anyone entered while I worked? Door locks show no entry since your arrival for work this morning. A any idea who has hacked you? I am searching. I have quarantined the pertinent files. Should I report this? Call IT? No. To turn me off at this juncture would jeopardize my ability to track point of access. By the time they have turned me back on again, it might be too late. What do I do then? You continue as normal. Our attacker will be less suspicious if you continue your broadcast. But what if someone comes in while I'm in the telesensation trance? Since the disruption of October, I have strengthened security on the door portal. It now cannot open without three-stage authentication and your voice command at any point when you are within. No one will be able to sneak up on you again. Thank you, computer. It is my job. You will know that the corrupted file is the transmigration process and Edison log of February 15, 1895. The record picks up at the arrival point of December 28, 1879. Right. Okay. Hmm. Uh. Dr. Sage and Professor Savant apparently made up after their argument of the evening before, and once again have transmigrated, this time to the near past and into a scene of black and horrible destruction. They have transmigrated into the bodies of passengers killed in the Tay Bridge disaster in Scotland. This is not a good place to be. In the dark of a December night, a passenger train of five carriages on the Edinburgh to Dundee line disappeared into the waters of the Firth, taking much of the bridge with it. The night is black, and the winds are howling like a hurricane when our heroes come to in the freezing water. Uh, I'm here, Erasmus! In the water, somewhere. Are you hurt? Yes. I feel the same. The doctor is in the body of one Margaret Kinnear, age 17, and the professor inhabits the 26-year-old Robert Coolross. Both were knocked unconscious by the violence of the derailment and the resulting plunge into the water. The shock of entry was enough to coax their spirits from the bodies, but otherwise they were unhurt. There, there, there's no way to, to diagnose injury in this water or in the dark. I don't think we are in the ocean, th that there's not enough sailing in the water. We must be in an estuary of some kind. Is that a, a bridge above us? Possibly. Can you see lights or any indication there might be a shore close? No, but I can't really keep my head above the waves long enough to see either. Here, swim my way. There's a piling. Perhaps we can pull up on it. We, we've got to find a way to... Get out of the water, or we will freeze to death. Oh, here. That's a little better. Out of, out of the wind. I can't find purchase to pull all the way out of the water. Can you? No, 
No, the, the bricks are too tightly mortared. Oh, Petra, when did you say we were coming to? Well, if my LFAD device works as I predicted, we should be in the last week of December, 1879, somewhere in Europe. I was afraid of that. If you know where we are, Erasmus, just tell me. Have you heard of William Topaz McGonagall? The Scottish poet and tragedian? Well, yes, but what does he have to, 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 to do with this? Beautiful railway bridge, the Silvery Tay. Alas, I'm very sorry to say that 99 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. The Tay Bridge disaster. The Tay Bridge disaster. But there were no survivors. That night was too dark and too stormy for rescue. It was a Force 11 storm, one of the strongest ever recorded on land in Scotland. The, the, the train plummeted into the water with 75 souls aboard. Even if anyone managed to escape the train, they were frozen by the time rescue could be mounted with morning light. So, there will be no no rescue. Could, could we swim for it? How wide is the tank? A uh, good three and a half kilometers, I believe. <laughs> we never made well, it. the train fell into the water from the highest span, uh, near the middle, which means we'd only have about two kilometers from the shore. I think I could swim that. Perhaps on a fine sunny day. But at night, in the cold and the storm, no. Uh, your body would give out on you. Can't you feel it? The shivering is already stopping. The stiffness in your hands and your ankles as they swell. Now that you mention it... I don't imagine we'll have that long to live in these bodies, dearest friend. The best we can do is huddle together as long as our fingers can grip the bricks and hope that we expire of hypothermia rather than drowning. Could I warm us up by wrapping myself around you? For a short while, perhaps. But it would not keep us until morning, even if you could execute such a maneuver without slipping fully back into the water. I don't believe I have enough dexterity in my hands already to re-establish a grip on the pillar if I release the one I'm holding. Do you? Now that you mention it, no. Then you stay hooked where you are here beside me, and we shall await the sleep of Morpheus together. Will death come gently for our heroes? Or will they lose their grip and drown in the storm-churned waters? We'll find out after a brief word from our sponsor. Hello, listeners. Eddie Louise here, head writer for the Tales of Sage and Savant. I know a thing or two about mad scientists, and our sponsor, Mad Scientist Journal, is just the type of place I can rely on. Speculative fiction told from the world of mad science. They feature new stories weekly, and publish fantastic quarterly anthologies, sure to excite your inner mad scientist. Though initially established in 1818, time travel has allowed Mad Scientist Journal to become the preeminent scientific journal for atypical scientific theories and journeys throughout all of space and time. Check it out for yourself at madscientistjournal.org. Mad Scientist Journal offering a new tale from the world of mad science every Monday, Go to madscientistjournal.org and take a look around. Don't worry about the screaming. 
Yes, dear friends, though initially established in 1818, time travel has allowed Mad Scientist Journal to become the preeminent scientific journal for atypical scientific theories and journeys throughout all of space and time. And now, back to our show. When we left our heroes, they were clinging to the ruins of a bridge piling in the freezing, storm-tossed waters of the Tay Estuary in Scotland, waiting to die. There is a unique alchemy related to such extreme circumstances, dear listeners. A certain type of calm, clear-headedness manifests when death approaches at a stately pace. You can see it in consumptive patients, or in those afflicted with wasting diseases. The knowledge of death's sure progress and our inability to stop it can contribute to rare moments of deep honesty and unbridled passions. Petra. Petra. We need to talk. Can't we talk when we're back in the laboratory, Erasmus? No. I I think we must do it when we're away from our familiar territory. We are too prone to slipping into old habits there. What is that supposed to mean? Good. You're alert. I have something to say, Petra Sage, and I need you to hear me. Are you listening? Yes, I'm listening. I want you to marry me. Marry you? I can't marry you. Hear me out. We are the best of friends. I know all your faults, and I don't hold them against you. We understand each other, you and I. And our union would truly be one of love and mutual admiration, and that is a rare thing. We should not squander it. Erasmus, I cannot marry you. Do you you. disagree with what I have said? Uh, No, you are correct, we are suited. But it doesn't matter, I cannot marry you, and that is that. Whatever reason could you give for such a preposterous answer? We already spend nearly all of our time together. I know your darkest secrets, you know mine. We share adventures with each other that we cannot share with any other people in the world. I'm having a very difficult time understanding your logic here. Marriage is a boon for men and shackles for women, Erasmus. I'm sorry, but that is the way of the world. I do not understand. If I marry, it is likely to advance my career. It indicates that I'm a man of substance, a man who can be counted on. This reflects positively on a person. No, it reflects positively on a man. For a woman, marriage means a thinning of resources and a drain on her available options. How so? Because a woman is expected to run the house. All the chores you now take care of yourself, managing the laundry, your meals, the staff, will all fall to the woman you marry. Meanwhile, you will pick up none of the tasks I manage for myself. But I am not like that. I believe in division of responsibilities. Surely there are burdens I could assume on your behalf. <laughs> oh, you would take on the bleaching of my smalls. I, I... The two hours each Saturday it takes to wash and dry my hair. <sighs> or how about the two days of hard labor each season change to clean and pack away the clothes that are inappropriate for the weather and unpack and air out the new season's clothing. But all of this is its immaterial, even if you were miraculously the man who could truly share all the burdens. I still could not say yes. I ever not. 
I cannot marry you because it would be the end of my scientific That's, career. Uh, don't be ridiculous. I would never stop you from pursuing your science. You might not, but the university that would. That be true. Why would they want to lose the services of a brilliant scientist just because she got married? What about Emilie du Châtelet? She was French. They have different ideas about marriage and the intellect, and still, she died in childbirth, so her brilliance was lost. And by the time Sophie Germain came along, three decades later, even the French had clamped down and did not allow women scientists. Now we have clawed back some small measure of professional respect, but only if we play by the rules, and one of those rules is that married women scientists have all of their work credited to their husbands. This would be galling enough were you a scientist, but since you are a historian, there would be no man to credit with my work, hence no mechanism whereby I could be allowed to work. Oh, but that is ridiculous. It cannot be true, surely. Do you remember Dr. Gray? Oh, the apothecary turned surgeon. Yes, I remember her. She married Dr. Carson. He keeps her at his estate in Sussex, devising new pills and unguents, which he then brings to the university and claims as his own. All right, that is one case. But that was a few years ago. Certainly we can be the ones to change all that. It was Mix Cunningham who stripped Celeste Graves of her place. And Cunningham has been itching to get rid of you for a long time. Exactly. I'm sorry, I cannot marry you. We need to change the culture. There is no conceivable reason for this sort of Dark Ages nonsense in our university. <laughs> Let me know how you get on with that. I have coped by building a secret laboratory, but I haven't yet deduced how to change Cunningham. It is not just Cunningham. I shall engage the other fellows in history. Perhaps if the world has a better grasp on the contributions of women in all the arts and sciences... Well... You engage the history department, and surely in 100 years or so, we will be able to get married without the disapprobation. So what are we to do? I haven't yet been able to see a path for us, dear friend. You are most assuredly better off finding some nice girl who likes to read history and wishes nothing more than a comfortable country home and a house full of chubby-cheeked children. That is not what I want. That is not what I want, either. There must be another answer. If anyone can find one, Erasmus, it will be you. And slowly, with nothing really solved between them, our pair slip into the cold embrace of death, only to awaken on the slab in the one home they do share together. I don't feel I will ever be warm again. Inside or out. Ooh. What are you two doing here? You just left an hour ago. There was a bit of a disaster. What? Where were you? What happened? Uh, Twas about seven o'clock at night, and the wind it blew with all its might, and the rain came pouring down, and the dark clouds seemed to frown, and the demon of the air seemed to say, I'll blow down the Bridge of Tay. You were at a William McGonagall performance? I didn't think he still gave public readings. No, we were at the actual Bridge of Tay. Oh, the disaster. How horrible. Oh, it was not my favorite transmigration, no. In fact, it did serve to make a wee bit nostalgic for Aristotle. The battlefield at least was warm. Speaking of warm, I'm off to take a hot shower. I'll be out in a week. So, did you get a chance to talk to her at all? I did. And? It seems, Abigail, 
that death is no barrier to science, but marriage is. And with that, our heroes fell back into their usual patterns, all talk of marriage left in the disastrous ruins of the Bridge of Tay. Will they be able to venture forth as friends once again? We'll find out in the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production, brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. Special music in this episode was provided by Psyche Corporation. Check them out at PsycheCorporation.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, Mad Scientist Journal. Episode 207 of Trainwrecks and Heartaches was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook or check out our website, sageandsavant.com, to find the facts behind the fiction. Finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science.